0: Hey everyone and welcome to this special edition of the Risky Business Podcast recorded at Ossert's 2013 conference on the Gold Coast. I'm Patrick Gray. All of our Ossert podcasts are sponsored by Sophos, Security Made Simple, Datacom TSS, discreet, Niche, Tailored, and Bugcrowd.com, Outsourced Bug Bounty Programs. Big thanks to all of our sponsors for making it possible to bring you these podcasts, and you can follow all of our Ossert coverage at risky.biz slash OSCERT, or via the RB2 RSS feed at risky.biz feeds. You're about to hear Dave Jorm's Ossert presentation. You might have heard Dave preview his talk on last week's episode of the regular Risky Business podcast, uh, but Dave, who works as a security response engineer for a large vendor, uh, studies geography and mathematics at the University of Queensland. And recently completed a study on long-term remote sensing analysis of North Korea. In his talk, he looks at an OSINT analysis, open source intelligence analysis, of uh, the entire country. And he talks about the work he did, as well as looking at what other North Korea watchers uh, are up to. And there's some really cool stuff in there about Red Star Linux, too, which is a North Korean Linux distribution uh, that is surprisingly polished. So here he is. It's Dave Jorms, Ossert Talk. Enjoy
1: everybody. Can you hear me okay on this lapel mic if I stand away from the lectern? Sounds like you can. Cool. Um, So I should probably introduce myself first. I noticed that in the magazine that was published, um, it actually listed me as working at Red Hat, which is true. I wear two hats and only one of them is red. The other one is that I'm a university student at UQ. I study mathematics, geography, remote sensing, climate forecasting, that kind of stuff. And it's with that hat on that I'm presenting uh, this work. My little clicker doesn't seem to be working. Any ideas, guys? Oh, there we go. Got it. So I wanted to start with a brief, brief history lesson on North Korea, just to put a little bit of context around this. I'm guessing most people might have the basics down, but let's just run through it. Um, After the Second World War, Korea became occupied by both the Soviet Army in the north and the US Army and its allies in the south. And pretty much the same thing as what happened in East and West Germany. They met in the middle. Uh, as, they, as they won the war, and then they sort of stayed there and stalemated. Uh, the Red Army wanted to get the hell out of Dodge, so they decided we need to install a local as the leader. They had two great candidates who both passed up the role, so Kim Il-sung, the third best candidate, got the job by default. He promptly invaded South Korea, pushed them all the way to the south, to right on the, the edge of the sea in Pusan, uh, and at this point the US and their UN allies decided that enough was enough. They joined the war, pushed uh, the North Korean army all the way back up to the Chinese border. Then the Chinese said, hang on a second, they joined in the war, and you wound up with the stalemate that you have today along the 38th parallel. After this, North Korea actually was more economically prosperous than South Korea. Up until I think the late 70s, it was significantly wealthier per capita than South Korea. And this was mainly because of trade with the socialist bloc, with the Eastern bloc. North Korea was actually largely an industrial center, and it was supplied with food and raw materials by its uh, socialist allies. But at the same time, it developed this ideology of juche, which roughly translates to self-reliance, the idea being that culturally, economically, militarily, the country should be completely independent and not rely on anybody else. And it's a little bit of a joke, because the only time that they were economically prosperous was when they were embedded in a web of trade. In 1994, Kim Il-sung died, and that's when the shit really hit the fan. Um, There was a severe famine that developed. It was The initial trigger was flooding, but it also really spiraled out of control due to economic mismanagement. And there's no good figures on this, but millions of people are likely to have died. Once their economy recovered from the famine, they decided that the best thing to do would be to plow all of their money into developing nuclear weapons, which is where we are today. But actually, that is just the imperialist, aggressor, revisionist version of history. The real version is that the socialist mastermind Kim Il-sung single-handedly defeated all of his enemies. He repelled an invasion of North Korea by the U.S. imperialist aggressors, and the war was actually a resounding victory for the North. Uh, The stalemate along the 38th parallel was really just where they decided to let matters lay because they didn't want to kill too many of their brethren in the South. South Korea is occupied by a vicious military puppet regime propped up by the U.S., and they actually yearn to be reunified with North Korea. Ta-da. North Korea continues to lead the South economically to this day because of their superior model and ideology. After Eternal President Kim Il-sung died in 1994, was succeeded by the dear leader or great general Kim Jong-il, uh some unfortunate natural disasters occurred and the result was the arduous march, which is a euphemism for everybody starving. Um and then the nuclear deterrent was developed to uh to push out the imperialist aggressors. Tada! That's actually the Tower of the Juche idea, and it's um one of the only features of the Pyongyang skyline that's lit up twenty four seven. So the piece of history that I really want to focus on is the famine that occurred in the mid-90s. And as I said, it was triggered by flooding initially, but it really spiraled out of control due to mismanagement of the situation, due to having a command economy that couldn't respond to that kind of disruption. And uh, their response, rather than really resolving the problem, was to, to go with a propaganda campaign. So you had, let's only eat two meals per day, or that um, the poster on the bottom right there, The translation is, as it says there, let's carry on the arduous march with strength, etc., etc. So they tried to turn it into a kind of ideological struggle against the wicked hunger. But what really happened was, uh, in the end, they got out of it due to food aid and due to recovery of the land. When a famine is triggered by floods, or when there's any severe flooding event, you get a lot of topsoil that's washed away. And then after that happens, it's more difficult for crops to grow. And then if you have a starving population who can't control access to their own crops, everything's in collective farms, they're likely to go in and raid everything. If you're hungry enough, there's no punishment that will deter you. You'll just bust into the fields and start stealing corn cobs off the stalks before they're even ripe. And that's exactly what happened. Oh, we've gone back there. So I had a theory that as a result of this, People picking the fields bare, the soil being washed away in the floods, etc., that the land would have been so degraded that it permanently reduced the agricultural capacity of that land. I.e., that even with future rainfall uh, being the same as it was in the past, you would get less agricultural production. And I did a study recently to try and test that theory. And what I did was look at publicly available satellite data, and I had a study period before the famine and a study period after the famine. And I tried to determine whether I could remotely sense a, a step change in the amount of there's something wrong with this, in the amount of uh, agricultural output for the same amount of rainfall. So that's um, the little highlighted bit with the red band next to it. That's a Landsat scene. Landsat is a satellite operated by the U.S. and they publish all of the data for free. You can download it all from Glovis or other systems run by the United States Geological Survey. And that one scene is one area that the satellite will keep coming back to again and again and again as it does passes. So that's the scene that I used for my study. The technique that I employed to try to determine um, whether there had been a change in in agricultural productivity was measuring NDVI. NDVI is the Normalized Difference Vegetation Index. And basically it's a ratio between the red and the near-infrared bands in multispectral satellite imagery. Um, the idea is that when... The really simple version is when a plant is healthy and green, it has a certain certain reflective properties that are distinctive to healthy plant growth. And when you don't have plant growth, you have bare soil or anything else, then you have another distinct reflective property. And that you can pick this up in the satellite imagery. So I did a whole bunch of analysis, but I don't want to go into it too much because I know that you're not uh, agricultural or... or uh, environmental scientists, and I won't bore you with the details. Basically, what I did was took that NDVI data for a series of of points in my study period, both before the famine and after the famine. And I also took gridded rainfall data, which is published, which says how much rain fell in that area um, seasonally for the study periods that I was looking at. And then I created a simple linear regression model, which is what you see here. So those little yellow points are scatter plots, and then the white line is the regression line. So what you can see is that there's a very high coefficient of correlation, meaning you can just see clearly that as rainfall goes up, the amount of NDVI or plant growth correspondingly goes up, and there's a strong relationship there. That's before the famine. That's after the famine. doesn't look too distinct. But what's interesting is the correlation is just as strong And the slope of that line is actually exactly the same to the precision that I was able to calculate. But have a look at the two. So that one's up there. That one's down there. It's jumped down a bit. So what that shows you is that the response of NDVI to rainfall is exactly the same, except it's just less. If you have, for example, you can see here 150 millimeters of rainfall in the preceding two months, you get about 0.11 NDVI. If you go back, you get about 0.2, which is a significant difference. So the conclusion of my study was that this was strong support for my theory. Obviously, it's not conclusive. I need to do further research. But the um, the interpretation of this data was that it was statistically significant and that it supported the theory that I set forth to, to prove. So after I did this study, um, I started to become more and more interested in remote sensing in general, and particularly what people were doing with it in North Korea. There's a whole bunch of satellites that uh, you can freely or commercially get data for. Landsat, for example, is what I was using. Of more interest, if you're interested in something higher res, both temporally and spatially, that you can really use for intelligence purposes, there's things like the commercial satellites run by Digital Globe. And that's what's actually aggregated in Google Earth and Google Maps. So it turns out there's a whole community of people that are into this. It seems sort of both for, for fun and profit. Um, just call out a few of the key players. Curtis Melvin is probably the, the number one person in this community who's, who started it and has been doing most of the interesting analysis. He's a PhD student in the US and he runs a website called NK EconWatch. Check it out. It's super awesome website. Martin Williams runs NK Tech, which focuses a lot on um, issues like software and internet access in North Korea. And then there's also 38North.org, which is run by a research institute out of John Hopkins University. And what this community does is, um, using those freely available sources of satellite data, perform their own kind of guerrilla intelligence, their own guerrilla analysis of things. And there's, there's a whole plethora of outputs. I'm just going to give you a brief tour here of some of the things that this community's produced. This is something that Curtis Melvin did, and um, they identified, using testimony for pe- from people that had escaped, sorry, defected from North Korea, they located one of the prison labor camps, Camp 25. And you can see it there with the yellow outline. That's an image. I can't quite read the dates. I think that's 2006 on the left, and then it's about 2012 on the right So what you can see is that there's been significant expansion in the camp. And he's gone in and manually analyzed this series of images and has produced a map where he's traced in the features. The yellow border is the perimeter fence. And you can see that they've cleared a whole new area for new construction and expanded the perimeter fence. The source of data that he used for this was Digital Globe, which runs their own uh, private network of satellites. And I think they must have cottoned on to the great media exposure that he got from this and decided that it would be a good idea to actually publish their own analysis. So you can go and download this for free from Digital Globe. They've produced this glossy 30-page PDF of um, satellite analysis of Camp 25, and they've gone down to the level of identifying the individual features in the camp. You know, where's the industrial area, the housing area, um, they've got where they think the crematory is, etc. It's quite an amazing level of detail. Curtis Melvin also publishes a collaborative digital atlas of North Korea, which is just produced as a um, KML file. You can uh, unpack it and use it on Google Earth. And it highlights a whole bunch of interesting features within the country. This one is my personal favorite. Uh, This edition of North Korea Uncovered was produced before the succession of Kim Jong-un. And this is Kim Jong-il's number one pleasure palace in um, Pyongyang. You can see there he's got a private horse racing track, private water slides, an underground railway station, and the whole thing is built into a little mountain valley so it can't be seen from the outside. It's quite amazing. And by just producing this as a KML file, just identifying the feature, he's not tying it to individual imagery. If higher res or better imagery becomes available, then you can just zoom in on the same spot. Another collaborative effort that's, that's been done on a similar vein is on Wikimapia, and they've also uh, highlighted a whole bunch of interesting features. What's better than an underground train station but an underground airbase? And um, what they have, the, the runway at the top left is actually just a regular above-ground runway. The one going down the bottom right runs straight through the middle of a mountain. And the idea is that they can store aircraft, uh, military aircraft, inside the mountain, so you can't just bomb the airfield and... And get rid of all of the aircraft, and then they can fly out of the mountain. It's so cool, and uh, <laughs> and crush the imperialist aggressors. So, um, one of the other things that this community has been watching a lot, obviously, is the satellite launches and the missile launches that have been taking place from sort of last year onwards. The Kwang—I can't pronounce it—Kwangmyongsang um, missile is what North Korea used, or sorry, I should say, launch vehicle is what North Korea used to successfully put a satellite into orbit in December 2012. They first started trying to launch this in April 20—April 2012—and uh, they had a few failures. And finally, they scheduled a new launch for between 10 to 22 December. Now, what's really interesting is that 38 North and others were able to accurately preempt the launch date by doing their own analysis of the satellite imagery. So this is something published by 38 North from the 10th of December. And what they can see is that the whole rocket launching system, the trailers that delivered the, um, I think it was the solid fuel, have left the parking lot. So they're saying that's done. And the tracks through the snow leading into the assembly building, where they're going to put the rocket together. But there's no tracks yet leaving the assembly building. So that highlights a point in a process. And they say, at this point in the process, you're about two days away from launch date. They said that on December 2012. Sorry, December 10, 2012. And December 12 was, in fact, when they conducted the launch. 38 North has also been doing some analysis of smaller rocket launch pads. Um, this is the Tonghai launch site near Chongjin in the the northeast of the country. And this isn't one that they're using to try and put satellites in orbit. It's just a general rocket testing testing range. And uh, this is a bit of a blurry image to make out, particularly from any distance, because it's got that um, shift in it. But What you can see is that there's a mobile launch stand that they've put in place. They've cleared all the snow off the launch pad, and they've put a crane in position in order to winch down the rocket that they're about to test. So these guys can look at that image and say, they're about to test a rocket. And then finally, probably the, of, of uh, most interest to people in the intelligence community would be the uh, Yongbyon Experimental Light Water Reactor, the nuclear reactor that everybody's so worried about. And uh, 38 North, again, have been doing analysis on this. They've been watching it over time. And you can see here that they've got an image from November 2012 where they've shown that some coolant piping, a trench has been dug to run coolant piping out of the plant, and that there's an area where it looks like they're going to put storage water tanks for the coolant. And then you zoom forward to January, and that trench has been covered in, so they must have completed the coolant piping, they've installed the water storage tanks, and again, they're able to use this to really track a process and say, well, this is how far along they are with the construction of this nuclear reactor. And they're, from January 2013... Um, this analysis was saying they're basically ready to rock. Outside of the sphere of just satellite imagery, there's a whole host of other sources of, uh, of information and other things that people have been doing as kind of a collaborative effort to, um, to interact with North Korea. One of them, and it's, it's not particularly sophisticated, but Anonymous Korea put together Op North Korea and managed to DDoS all of North Korea's official websites. It's not too many countries that you could easily do that for. Um, also, there's some people in South Korea that intercept North Korea's public television signals. If you're close to the border there in South Korea, you can, uh, you can easily pick up North Korean television. And actually, they have super strong transmitters and jammers because they want North Korean television to get out, but they don't want South Korean television to get in. So um, some people have actually set up a live streaming feed and you can see in the... That's YouTube on the left. The one on the right, that URL in there, um, you can go on there and any time of day or night watch North Korean television. It's not very good. It's usually a lot of military marches or that one there seems to be like a, a black and white Days of Our Lives set in the countryside with a lot less sex and drugs and a lot more potato farming. The other thing is... Um, that's come out in the last few years has been glimpses of North Korea's own computing infrastructure. And the first thing that came out was uh, Red Star Linux, which is a KDE-based Linux distribution that's used internally in North Korea. There's a Russian university student who was studying as an exchange student at Kim Il-sung University, the premier university in Pyongyang, and he went to the local market just to, I I guess, to buy some wares or whatever you, you know he intended to get. And he got a copy of Red Star Linux, installed it on his machine, and was quite amazed to find that it was a, a fully functional, home-brewed Linux distribution. What's really interesting about it is it's not just like they've taken Fedora or Ubuntu or something, you know, put Korean language skin on it, and, and that's it. They've actually developed some of their own custom features. It has the Firefox browser on there, but there's no internet in North Korea. Instead, what they have is this thing called Kwangmyong, which is an intranet, and there's free dial-up access for everybody in the country, and they have their own version of like a, a digital library. They have all kinds of mini internet, and so the the configuration of Firefox, the default configuration that it ships with, provides some insight into how that network operates. The other thing, probably more interesting that it has, is a custom antivirus um, package on there. Now most people, uh, most Linux distributions, don't even include AV. So it's interesting that they're including one and that they've got their own one, which is provided as a binary-only distribution. That's definitely something any of the people in the AV field in the room, it'd be awesome to do some analysis on that and write it up. I'm not aware that anybody has. There's a screenshot. Um, of course, the barrier to this is you need somebody who speaks Korean, because there's no, uh, there's no English language pack. But yeah, that's, that's uh, Red Star Linux. So that was a pretty quick whirlwind tour of all of this stuff, but I wanted to leave plenty of time for questions because I know this is a topic that that uh, when I've discussed it with other people, there's been a lot of questions about. But the conclusion that I wanted to make, the theme that I wanted to kind of draw together here, was that um, all of these different things are ways in which we as individual independent citizens are able to gather information about a, a state entity. I can sit here in my my basement in Brisbane and say, I'd like to know what the agricultural output of North Korea from 1994 to 1998 is. And using only free information that's provided from Landsat, gridded rainfall data provided by uh, the World Met organization, I can put together a fairly accurate model of that. And if they actually were to publish any official statistics, I could compare them to my model and see whether they seem to be wrong. For a country like North Korea, that's especially important because there's no good source of information. The, the regime does not have any kind of credible mouthpiece. But I think it's also relevant to other countries where, the say, for example, the Australian agricultural statistics, one would presume are fairly accurate. But do we as individual citizens have any tools to independently verify that? Well, now we do. And I think if you if you kind of squint a little, this is all like a side-channel attack. There's all of this information that's going out through an official mouthpiece, but via the side channel of things like leaked TV data, uh, TV streams, satellite data, etc., we can can get a different picture of the underlying system. I also have a few ideas for future research in this area. One of them that I touched on er earlier was the um, Red Star Linux, the custom AV that's in there. I'd love to see some analysis on that. This is one I'd like to do personally. If anybody's got a bunch of money they want to burn, hit me up. Um, I would really like to try and gauge the security capability of North Korea. Uh, Bill was up here earlier talking about the security capabilities of China. I keep hitting that. And uh, there's been a lot of speculation in the media recently about the security capabilities of North Korea, particularly their offensive security capabilities. But I don't think there's any reliable or substantial information. It's all just speculation. But what they've done is partnered with a whole bunch of of joint partner organizations, including an IT company in Germany. And you can outsource software development and other IT work to North Korea through their German partner company. What I would really like to do is create a honeypot app with no flaws in it, pass it to them, and say, can you please do a security review? Or even more benignly, you could simply ask them to produce some software and say, I'm particularly concerned about security. I want to make sure that you do really good app sec in, in your implementation of this web app or whatever it is and see what they do. And it wouldn't necessarily give you any idea of whether they don't have a capability. Say you told them to pen test a, an app and it contained a particular flaw and they didn't find it. Well, you wouldn't know that they, they don't know how to do that. But if they did find it, you would know that they do know how to do that. So it could be a really interesting study if it turned up um, powerful capabilities. So that's the end of my talk. Um, Any questions? Can we get a mic? Hey,
0: Dave. Um, Hey. I was just wondering how often this imagery actually updates. Because uh, you were looking at you know, different points in time. I mean, can you get daily updates, or is it monthly, or do you
1: rely on different sources? Or It depends on the satellite. Most of these satellites are on a uh, polar orbit, so usually they would update about every two to four days, depending on their orbit, and also depending on what the operator of the satellite will, will release. So, for example, with Digital Globe, I think you can go in and buy new data for every two or four days for a given point on the globe, but what Google will buy... May not update for quite a, a long period of time. So it depends whether you're relying on Google to reflect that to you or whether you're getting it directly from the source, which would involve paying for it. Yep, gentleman at the front. Do we, do we have a mic that we can pass forward?
0: Thank you. Um, it was going to be a similar question, but um, do you think the uh, governments around the world are doing what the amateurs are doing, and are there satellites that perhaps are providing live imagery? I, I know they're on an orbit, so perhaps that's not possible, but I'm only, not aware the on- of habit. The
1: only way to get live imagery is if you have a geostationary orbit. So that's where the, the orbit of the satellite is at the same pace as the Earth's rotation, and from memory, I think that's 36,400 kilometers from Earth. So it's way too far to get anything high-res. Most of our geostationary satellites are for weather and uh, environmental monitoring, but, uh, and for communications, of course. Um, but these sort of satellites are all in polar orbits, so no, there's no live monitoring. But that's a really good point about what the governments have. And I'll presume there's some guys sitting up the back here who are with some kind of defense, defense imagery organization snickering at my primitive techniques. But... Um, And if you are, I would love to hear what what you actually do or what you think of of what I've presented. Um, Because I'm sure that the the defense community, the intelligence community, is doing far more sophisticated things. But what I really wanted to highlight was that this is no longer their exclusive domain. That with the data that's now publicly or commercially available, uh, independent individuals can also do this kind of analysis.
0: Just a quick follow-up on that. we're looking down at space. Is there something that is looking up at space to see if there are satellites that are in those orbits that can view live imagery? I don't satellites know. Watching satellites? That's a
1: good question. I don't know. Yes, yeah, certainly.
0: Sorry, just to answer that question very briefly. Uh, there are a big bunch of nerds who um, uh, track pretty much any object in orbit, um, quite similar to this bunch uh except that's their particular specialty and uh some Google searches will uncover that. They uh, pretty much find anything that's in orbit including bits of space junk and they certainly were following the X-35. Oh, the, the, the
1: North Korean uh rocket they were Oh yeah yeah and no. they, they
0: could see that it was on a very um wonky orbit that it was you know not a particularly good piece of hardware. So yes there are people who are looking back up and seeing what's in orbit. Yes
1: gentlemen. Gentleman at the front. Um, just firstly, if North Korea doesn't have an actual functioning internet and just an internet, do you have any idea why they bothered with uh, an antivirus program? Yeah, well, that's 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 what makes it such an interesting question. Um, what is their concern? Is it that they're concerned about domestic uh, threats on the internet? That they're concerned that there would be malicious individuals? You know, I mean, I guess the world is full of hackers in their bedrooms. Um, coming up with stuff. If you're in North Korea, you can't get on the internet, so you get on the intranet. Maybe they are concerned about that. And I guess because it's an intranet, it may well um, expose more of the country's own critical infrastructure. You know, I I imagine that the the firewalling regime may be different to things that are facing the public internet. So I can't give a conclusive answer, but that's one of the reasons why I'm really interested in either myself or somebody else doing some more conclusive analysis on, on Uh, what's in Red Star Linux. And just quickly, any thoughts on uh, Google's recent attempts to map North Korea compared to what you guys are doing? That was something I should have mentioned in this talk. Thank you for pointing that out. Um, Google actually crowdsourced their data, and it was largely the community that I'm talking about that provided them with that data. You would have seen in some of my slides I had the Wikimapia project, North Korea Uncovered, which were um, collective efforts to produce map labels for North Korea. And it was obviously a big black hole. There's no street labels. There's no cartographic information for North Korea. So Google decided to crowdsource it. And if you zoom in on Google Maps now, you will see that there are place labels. There are street names. And that's, that's how Google sourced all that information. It was from the community. Yes?
0: Uh, isn't the work that you're doing incredibly speculative? And there's a risk that you make a claim mm. and the media latch on that. You shift public opinion. know, we've seen uh, with... Uh, weapons of mass destruction in Iraq, they had far more detail than what you probably had, yet got the wrong conclusion. So what's the duty of care or responsibility you have when putting these claims out there?
1: There we go. That's better. Um, That's a really good question, yeah. And I think I'm not attempting to claim anything about some of this intelligence stuff. I am making a claim about what happened with the famine, because that's my own research, and I feel like that stands up to the standards of the academic community that's involved in that field. And, and, and people may well attack it and say you have insufficient data, you need to do a, a study using a, a, different, um, a different instrument or so on, and all of that would be valid. But you're right, to start to go too far down the line and make claims here about um, exactly what North Korea is doing, for example, to say, based on the fact that there is a crane there, they are going to launch a rocket. Um, I guess it would, be, it would be a piece of inductive reasoning rather than deductive reasoning. We would be saying, with a crane there, every time there's been a crane there in the past, they've launched a rocket. So it is highly likely that they are going to do that again, but there's no deductive reasoning here for us to actually make those claims. So you're right. It is something where I should probably tread a little bit carefully about the claims that are being presented.
0: We have a little bit more time, so definitely time for more questions. Would you ever visit North Korea?
1: Yes, I plan to in October.
0: And you're not afraid that they know about your research? Oh,
1: they probably do, but they've let in a lot of people who have uh, published things that have been discussing the regime or even critical of the regime. Um, From what I've seen, they they accept people as tourists. Um, So, yeah, I'm, I'm planning to go in October this year.
0: Uh, G'day, David. Justin from the University of Queensland. Uh, my question might be slightly tangential to your work, but I think you may have an interesting opinion. Mm. Uh, which Korea is best Korea?
1: <laughs> I reckon I've got to say that I reckon North Korea is best Korea just because of their style, because of their flair. I mean, look at the tower of the Juche idea that I had in my slides. Uh, South Korea doesn't have anything on that, so i go with the North. All right. Any last questions?
0: Okay, thank you very much everybody. Please join me in thanking David for a great presentation.